Life's like a process of elimination. You take the job to realize you don't want that job. You date the person to realize like you don't want to date that person. And slowly you chip away at what you do want and what you are. And so I think it took me every single job to kind of get a better sense of who I was. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hey everyone, it's Danielle. My guest today is Lori Siegel. She spent over a decade at CNN, eventually becoming a senior tech correspondent for the network. She was the reporter covering the rise of tech giants from Facebook and Twitter to Uber and Airbnb. The list of CEOs she's interviewed is basically a Silicon Valley who's who. Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook, Jack Dorsey, Sheryl Sandberg, Bill Gates, and many others. Lori left CNN to start her own media company in 2019. Since then, she's also been a correspondent for 60 Minutes Plus. And somehow, she's also managed to find the time to write a memoir about all of it. Her book, Special Characters, My Adventures with Text, Titans, and Misfits, I love that title, (laughs) comes out March 8th. Lori, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. I love that intro. (laughs) I I really love that that title. Before we get into the the conversation, we're going to warm up with a lightning round. So quick questions, quick answers. Ready? Okay. What was your first job? Oh, I worked at a a pizza shop making pizzas in Atlanta. Were you good? (laughs) Were you good at making pizzas? Oh, I was absolutely terrible. I was pretty (laughs) bad at it, actually. (laughs) Like noteworthy bad. Do you have any hobbies? Well, you know, I used to love writing. God, I think I'm doing terrible at this lightning round already. I used to love writing, but then I wrote a book and my job became writing. So I stopped journaling as much. But I love I love going and seeing different bands and listening to different music. So I'll, I'll use that one instead of writing. What's the last show you binge watch? What's the Anna Delvey? Like Inventing Netflix Anna. One on it? Inventing Anna. I just I just watched it. Oh, my God. And my fiance and I had so many debates about how we felt about it. And we totally fell on different sides of it. So, okay. I just finished it too. What did you think? Oh my God. It was just, it's amazing. Like if you live in New York, if you came up in this last era of New York, like watching how she just talked her way, like relentlessly like to the top. And it's just like, it's such a statement on society and these like big bankers and everyone. And like, what divides her and some of the other people that get away with so much of this stuff. And, And so I don't know. Do I agree with everything she did? Obviously not. But do I think there's some super interesting nuance there? Yes. I feel like I want to have an inventing Anna book club, even though it's not a book, because there's a lot of things that I just need to talk out and I don't know quite how I feel about it. That's how I feel. Yeah. I'm I'm happy to join that book club. And I Thank still want to know like the true story behind Rachel and like what's up with Rachel. Oh, not sure where I fall. I agree. Okay. More to come on that. <laughs> Maybe the next podcast. Who's someone you haven't interviewed yet who you would like to interview? 
I was going to go with like a simple, like, oh, I, out of the tech titan, I haven't interviewed Elon Musk or anything like that. But honestly, like, I don't know, that's not that exciting to me. The ones I, I would love to interview, like, are no longer with us, like Joan Didion and Nora Ephron and like my inspiration of women, female writers, but they're no longer with us. So I think that those would be my, my pie in the sky, to be honest with you. I'm with you on Joan Didion. My other question I was going to say is it, who's one person you would want to have at a dinner party, living or dead? And I think both of those women yeah, would be great both of those dinner people. party guests. That would be the yeah. best dinner party ever. Okay, let's get into it. You've been interested in telling stories for a long time. You used to write profiles for your high school newspaper. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the first time you felt like you were a good interviewer, that you hmm. felt like you told a good story. In high school, I was like the only Jewish girl at a very Christian, conservative Southern school. And I, I never quite felt like I fit. I kind of found my place writing these, these articles for the school newspaper called Spotlight. And I would just spotlight people that a lot of people ignored. I wouldn't use it as an opportunity to like, to interview the popular kid. I would interview the people that everyone thought was very strange. And there was a coach named Coach Red who was like, I'm going to say he was like 80 years old and he was the track coach and no one um, understood why he was a track coach because he definitely had not run in like, I want to say maybe 50 years. <laughs> and so it was like kind of easy to just make a judgment on him. So I wanted to interview Coach Red. I remember like sitting on the mats in the gym and having this conversation with him and I'm like, what? there's got to be more here. And we went and we started talking and, you know, I just think I asked him a bunch of questions and made him feel comfortable. And he started opening up about his wife and how they met during the war and all these like incredible stories. And he opened up about having Parkinson's and like how much that had impacted him and how he was afraid to die. I mean, God, it was like one of those things where it was just the most human thing anyone had said to me in one of these interviews. And I just thought like, I'm going to tell stories the rest of my life. So I think that that was the moment I was like, hmm. Maybe I've got something, you know? That's a great moment. So talking about telling stories early in your your career, in your book, you talk about something you did in your junior year of college (laughs) that you thought was going to be your big break, and that's not exactly how it turned out. So tell us about the undercover story for Glamour. You mean declaring my virginity to the world? Yes. Because that was super awesome. Um, yeah, like actually, so how I got my big break as a journalist was I was, um, I went to university of Michigan and I was doing a bunch of writing classes. I still knew I wanted to be a journalist and I I got this opportunity to go undercover at a purity ball for those of your your listeners who, um, haven't heard of what a purity ball is. It's where young women go and devote their virginity to their fathers. (laughs) I'm going to go down a a Google rabbit hole on purity balls. So you go to one. Yes. And it's this whole world that I I didn't really know existed. Totally. I mean, it's a fascinating world. It's where like young women, I mean, we're talking five years old, like, uh, like very young women up to like, I was pretty sure I was like 20 something early. Maybe I was like 1920 at the time in college, right? go and devote their virginity to their father. So they're essentially saying, I will be a virgin until I'm married, which by the way, totally no judgment either way. It's just a very interesting event where people wear ball gowns. It's like almost like I come from the South. So it feels like cotillion to some degree with like purity pledges and virginity pledges and like signatures where you sign it over to your father. And I went with my dad. So I was undercover and clearly like the oldest person there. 
and I was devoting like my virginity to my father, essentially, I had a blast. Like I was like running into the bathroom and scribbling notes on like the flower arrangements and the people I was seeing. And like, I was like, this is amazing. What a fascinating cultural thing. And I just like, I knew that this was the job for me because like I found these worlds fascinating and wanted to write them. So like I came back and I wrote this, like my first like think piece with all the nuance of like, what would it be like to like devote your sexuality, like basically to your father, like when you're so young and not even knowing and having explored it and how it felt to really be there. And I remember I was like walking into like Amir's Deli at University of Michigan and I got a call from the editor of Glamour and she literally, her, her sentence to me was like, are you a virgin? And I was like, what? And she was like, are you a virgin? And I was like, why, like, why does that matter? And and by the way, not to give like the side note was that I was super awkward in high school, like, you know, and didn't have a boyfriend. And then I got to college and was also kind of awkward. And I just hadn't really had a serious boyfriend. And it's not like I was going to lose my virginity to like one of the random frat guys who was awful. So it's not like I was really waiting. It just hadn't really happened yet. Yeah. So like I'm trying to explain this. By the way, that was my explanation I gave to the editor of Glamour who like, literally didn't care at all. And she was like, well, we want this in like a first person, like about your sexuality and your virginity. And I'm like, it's like my life was just like flashing Mm. before me. And it it was early. Like now I would have the ability to push back on an editor and say, that's not the angle I want to take, you know, but early in my career, I was like, this is my big break. And I sent in a draft and it just got so convoluted. By the end, it was like basically not something I wrote. It was essentially a piece that started with like, I am a virgin or something. I mean, it was horrible. And it was like a declaration of my virginity under a picture of me having signed a virginity pledge. Like it was me and my dad smiling. And I left to go to London um, to study abroad. And I was like, well, at least as it hit the newsstands, I was like, at least I'll be in London, you know, and this can happen. And like, no, I'm never, I'm going to be a virgin forever after anyone reads this. And then I got to London and they decided that this would go international. So like, no. <laughs> okay. So, so I yeah. am, I am cringing so hard for you thinking that I would not have handled that well. I mean, not like I did handle it. Well. Yeah. But in the end, you know, it, it did help you get on the right path because totally. from that, it seems like you learned what area in reporting and media really interests you. Totally. And I, and I think for me, it was a learning experience. And I remember after that, I was like, I really want to get a job in like hard news. I want to go to CNN. I grew up in Atlanta. I knew CNN very well. And I literally cold called the head of human resources from like my flat in London. I remember thinking, I'm like, I'm going to get a job at CNN as an intern. And I think it was like almost really my first job as a journalist. Like your first job as a journalist is to like be persistent and not annoying and just call and everyone's going to reject you and you just have to like keep going. And so like, no one called me back and I just kept calling, but like, then I was self-deprecating about calling a lot. And I almost positive this woman wanted to clear her inbox. And that's why she called me back and had me interview for like several jobs, which I did not get. And finally I got an internship at CNN, but it all started with a declaration of my virginity. I had a similar experience, not on the the virginity side, but on the (laughs) internship side of just cold calling repeatedly HR 
And someone ended up canceling and dropping out. And I think I just happened to leave multiple voicemails on the right day. And that is, I think, how I got my foot in the door. So you've described yourself as being scrappy, which I think is always helpful, but it's especially, I think, needed when you go into journalism. So you started at CNN as a freelance news assistant right out of college, and you basically had a year to prove yourself and hopefully get hired. What did Scrappy actually look like to you back then? I mean, God, so many things. I mean, first of all, you just have to be willing to do anything, which like, you know, you're getting there at like five or six in the morning and you have to teleprompt for like the anchor who's evil and like no one tells you that and everyone disappears when like the horrible guest comes that's mean to everyone and all the other news assistants have gone, but you didn't know that like <laughs> that's the bad guest. And so you're the one who's miking them up. And I think probably one of the scrappiest things I did, and I did a lot, like we were, we like just were scheming like all throughout like my early years at CNN. I mean, I think I still scheme, but like just on different (laughs) levels. I remember I got away from the desk and I'd gotten a job at something called business updates, which like, I don't think it exists anymore. So I can say this, but like, I found a way to stay in the door at CNN, but like I had, I got a job and it was like being a production assistant covering the markets. And it was like, no one told me this, but it was like the bad wedding table. It was like Scriberia and inventing Anna, you know? And I was miserable there, but I was done every day at 4 p.m. because that's when the market closed. People would literally just watch like Real Housewives on their television. And the the boss was strange and like knew none of our names. But after 4 p.m., I would go and explore technology stuff. So I got really into, there was like this tech scene in New York that was beginning to bubble up. You had the iPhone had come out, the App Store had launched, like Wall Street wasn't as cool because of the recession. And there was a creative class. And I would go and spend time at like Tom and Jerry's with people who were like drinking and talking about apps. I feel like I'm 90 saying that. But I knew that I wanted to go to South by Southwest a lot of tech uh, folks were beginning to go to South by Southwest. This was probably like 2010. And I knew that they were not going to send me like, and and I had started doing some tech stuff for CNN money in my free time. And so I literally, I I think I talked to someone else and I was like, well, I'm already going to be there, you know, and I already have interviews with all of these people lined up. Let me send my best friend, Deb, my friend, Deb was a photojournalist. I was like, if you just send my friend Deb, like I'm already going to be there on vacation. Like I was not going to be there on vacation. This was all a roll the dice move. Like just let us go. and We'll give you great tech content. And then on the other end, I was reaching out to like Dennis Crowley. He was the founder of Foursquare, like Ev Williams, the founder of Twitter, his folks and saying, oh, I'm a producer at CNN. We'd love to do a bunch of stories on you. So basically I was just like, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say this. I was like bullshitting on both ends. And I ended up going they sent me, they sent Deb. We shared a bed in a double room. We would stay out late. We'd edit at night. I would interview everyone from Dennis to Ev to all the big tech founders. And and like no one knew that I was just a production assistant lying my way to South by Southwest. And that's kind of what put me on the map a bit. I have so many similar stories, especially I love the line of like, oh, I just kind of happened to be there. That's that is <laughs> definitely like a go to line, especially in the, the early days. I was reading on probably on Instagram, honestly, this morning. And (laughs) there was a conversation about, I'm not paraphrasing it entirely correctly, but about how 
for the people that go above and beyond in their roles, they should get paid for it. Mm -hmm. And when I'm thinking about my early days Uh or what you just said, right? It's basically like you create these experiences that you're not getting paid for, that you figure out how to pay for yourself in, in a lot of ways. And I'm really torn on on what to tell people, especially younger people, because on one hand, I want to be like, you know, know your worth. And on this other hand, I'm like, well, you don't really have worth yet. Yeah. You got to prove it. So what is, you know, looking back on that and, and thinking about advice for people starting out in the business today, what would you say? It's interesting. I was willing to do anything, you know, and, and I also think I paid attention there was an editor at CNN named Ross who like in my free time, I would go and sit and watch him edit, you know? So it wasn't just, I did the job I was supposed to do. I was also curious. So I think curiosity is really important. Ross ended up being a game changer for me. He's the one that put in the recommendation for me to get a full-time job there, but he taught me a lot. I was very curious. So I think curiosity is important. And then I also think a job is a placeholder. When I was at Business Updates, the bad wedding table, like it's not where I wanted to be, but I was willing to do anything and do anything well to stay in the building. And then I used that as a way to do all these other things that I was interested in. No one handed it to me. I created my own job position. I literally went with a piece of paper to the head of CNN Money and said, I don't think this job exists. The first digital reporter, essentially, at a multi-platform reporter at CNN covering startups but I think it should. So I think my advice would be, yes, be scrappy. Don't be afraid to take a job just and do really well, you know, and put your heart into it, but use it as a placeholder for another job. And then this is such a broad statement, but like life's like a process of elimination. You take the job to realize you don't want that job. You date the person to realize like you don't want to date that person. And slowly you chip away at what you do want and what you are. And and so I think it took me every single job to kind of get a better sense of who I was. The other thing that I think you get really used to in being a journalist is rejection and hearing no a lot. Mm -hmm. How have you gotten over, or I'm assuming you have gotten over fear of rejection? Yeah. I mean, I hate rejection, but it's such a part of the job. I mean, if I hated rejection, like I would have stopped over a decade ago. I could say the same thing for being a journalist as it would be for being an entrepreneur. To be a great journalist, you have to be able to hear no and to be a great entrepreneur. One of, especially I've interviewed the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. The through line is like, you have to be able to accept no and just be resilient, right? And so for me, I always looked at no as a journalist as like, oh, it's just four or five steps away from yes. You know, like I just have to work around it, especially with a source or someone who doesn't want to do an interview or something like maybe they don't want to do an interview now. But if you build a relationship, maybe that won't be the case in the future. And some of the biggest no's in my life have turned into the most important moments of growth or the biggest opportunities. For example, like when I was at the desk at CNN as that you know freelance news assistant, there was a job opportunity that came up at the tapes desk. And The tapes desk at CNN is literally, I don't even think it exists anymore. Like it is literally just taking in incoming feeds of like congressional hearings and you sit at a computer all day. You did the same. Oh my God. I am so sorry. Yeah. I am so sorry. Like it seems (laughs) like the worst job in the world, but it was an opportunity for me to stay in the building. And I was very close to getting that job, but I got rejected and they told me no. And they told me they're going to go with someone else. And I just remember being like, this is it. 
my dreams of journalism are, are done. But I ended up getting that job at Business Updates, The Bad Wedding Table. But that led to me being free every day at 4 p.m. and having the freedom to explore technology, which led to me creating our startup beat and which led me to be on camera early in my career, which led me to, you know, become our senior technology correspondent and eventually led me to write this book and be on with you. So, you know, it's like it, it is, you know, it is that being able to accept rejection and look at it as opportunity, which it can feel terrible at the time. I want to talk through you've talked about moment to moment and how things kind of laddered to getting you to this point. Mm -hmm. One of those big moments for you was in 2018. You interviewed Mark Zuckerberg at the height of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Why was that such a standout interview for you? You know, I think that I had always been this person that I covered tech and it was a beat, right? But Cambridge Analytica was this huge event that I feel like my mom cared about. It was mainstream in that it was a larger question of like, what has gone wrong with tech? Like, what are they doing with our data? What decisions have been made where we are losers on the other side of it? And I think like everyone seemed to care. It wasn't just my tech friends. It wasn't just the media. It was like the thing that made the question about technology and its real impact on society go viral to some degree. And even sitting across from Mark that day, and it was a crazy experience, hearing him apologize, you know, I pushed him to talk to say he would be willing to talk about regulation and to show up for those hearings and whatnot. But it was just, I think for me, it was a moment even in my career of like, things have gotten so complicated. I had ridden the tech wave to the top. I was the person that when people didn't look towards Instagram and didn't care about these founders or Uber, or Airbnb, I convinced people in corner offices to put them on TV. And all of a sudden they, they were the band, the band got cool. And like, there were a lot of complications. And I think that was really big for me. And then I think another thing personally, was how that interview came about. I had been in technology for all these years and all of a sudden it was like cool to cover tech. And there were a lot of like dudes coming in who had opinions on social media who were getting a lot of airtime at CNN. And I remember going on TV, I had done a ton of reporting on what was happening inside Facebook and, and I actually had real news to break on it. And I remember going on with this anchor and they put me on with this guy who I will not say his name because people will know his name, but he like newly had newly formed opinions on social media. And he just loved to hear himself talk and he didn't have any actual news on it. And the anchor went to him and he spoke for like the whole segment. And then she came to me, like the person who'd been covering technology my whole career, who actually had insight. And she's like, okay, really quick, what's happening inside the company? And I had about like 30 seconds to just like speak and actually give real news. And I was so pissed, Danielle. Like, I don't know. It was just like, I was pissed off for all of it. Yeah. You know, something in me was just like, I'm so sick of like all of this. And I remember getting offset. I remember being like, I'm going to book Mark Zuckerberg. He needs to speak. It's been three or four days. This is a massive scandal. And I went on Facebook and we have like a hundred friends in common. And I had interviewed him once before. I was like, you know, his first interview in, uh, on TV in like five years, the year before when Facebook was changing his mission. And I said, you have a responsibility as a leader to speak. I know there's a lot happening behind the scenes. Like, and I, I made my case all because I just got spoken over and I was pissed. It took me being just spoken over by like some dude, like again and again. And so I saw that he saw the message. You know, I was like face icon popped off. Yeah. And so then I called her head of PR and I knew that they'd be contacting them. And I was like, and I made my hard pitch and like a storm was coming in and it was like, 
I was like, I need to know if I need to be on a plane. And, and my God, like I got on a plane, probably one of the last planes out and I interviewed him and it got picked up everywhere. And I remember they put me on CNN, like I was on with Anderson and it was a panel with three men and they were like, or two or three men. And like, they were all speaking over me. And I just remember being like, it doesn't matter. Like I got the interview. I'm the one who like created this whole news cycle. And like, I don't care. You got it. And then even then, this is probably one of the things that kicked my butt into writing this book. A Wired writer wrote a couple months later, like how that interview came, like the came behind the scenes at Cambridge Analytica and how it came about and all this kind of stuff and, and was talking about the chaos at Facebook. And he wrote, you know, and then Facebook summoned a CNN reporter to do the interview or something. And there was something about it that just was so like, it doesn't matter who I am. It's just like, I was summoned. Like I did nothing. Like I have Booker's book for me. I did nothing. It didn't sit right. You know? And I think for me, I was like, I want to tell my own story. So anyway, that was a long answer to your, um, to your question about it. It was, but I think it actually segues into you grow up at CNN. Mm -hmm. You obviously have and create these experiences mm -hmm. and roles for yourself. And then in 2019, you decide to do it on your own and yeah. you start your own media company, yeah. dot, dot, dot. How scary was it to make the jump? I mean, terrifying, but it also like, it was the best thing I ever did. I remember talking to Jeff Zucker, like he was, cause he was my mentor there. And I remember being like, I, I mean, I wasn't sleeping before. Like it's like ever, everyone, no one knew. How could she leave? I was the only person Zuckerberg would speak to for interviews. I had interviewed every major person. I was like, I had a name there. I was Lori from CNN. Like, who was I without all this? But I was unhappy. The nature of cable news had changed. I couldn't do my long-form investigative work. Technology has changed. I wanted to do the human part of it. And, and now it was a lot of like talking heads on TV. This is the Trump era. It was tough. And I just knew like there was a place for long-form, more interesting, nuanced content. I also knew that like I wanted my own thing. And I was having this conversation with Jeff and I remember going back and forth with him and he was saying, it's just stay, give us some interviews in some capacity. We can do half in, half out. And I remember saying to Jeff, like, cause I'd become obsessed with this video of a rabbi talking about how lobsters grow. Like I just, it's like, and you know, and like the only way for lobsters to grow is for them to completely shed their shells. That might be the best comparison to career development that I've heard. Yeah. I mean, it truly is. It's like, I was obsessed with this rabbi video and he like talks about like, when lobsters grow, they have to completely shed their shells and it's the most stressful time for lobsters, but like they're super vulnerable and it's stressful, but the only way for them to get bigger is for them to shed their shell. So I remember I had like practiced saying what I was going to say to Jeff. Like maybe we do on it. So I was like, practice like how I was going to quit my job, even though I didn't know how to create a media company. I didn't know how to raise money. I didn't know how to do all that, even though I had interviewed all these people. And I went in and we were going back and forth and he had his like business hat on and he's Jeff Zucker. Like he's smart as hell. In the middle of it, I started going back on my, like my conviction. And I just said to him, I was like, Jeff, I have to tell you how lobsters grow. And I like, I told him. <laughs> How lobsters did he grow get it? And how did he let you he go? To he totally got it. I think that we live our lives best when we have a lot of lobster moments, but I think we don't talk about how painful they are and how stressful they are. But it was the best thing I could have done, and it was not easy, and it's still painful, but it was wonderful. I mean, I'm glad I did it. I never looked back, you know. I love that it's still to this day the hardest thing that I've done quitting my job. Yeah. 
I want to hear about D3, mm. your latest venture, because I think there are so many questions on Web3 and what it means exactly. And it is between that and the book, I feel like you've you've definitely made good use of this weird pandemic atmosphere we've been living in. You know, we launched dot, dot, dot in 2019. I never launched a company. Um, I've been at Cena my whole career. And then uh, two months later, the pandemic hit. <laughs> so awesome timing for us. But the idea was to create a, a media company looking at the intersection of tech and humanity. And now we're all like starving for humanity through the lens of tech. So, you know, we were operating as a production company. We had shows in development. My book is actually a product from dot, dot, dot. We had a podcast with iHeart. So we were operating, you know, but I think I left to really create a platform, to create a network. I mean, that was what I really wanted to do. And it wasn't until I started hearing about Web3, and this was back in March of last year, Beeple, the artist, had sold an NFT for $69 million. I embedded with him and did a, bit of, uh, did a story on him. I did a whole thing on the metaverse before people were talking about the metaverse. Web3, this idea of we're living in these more immersive environments, like even look at how we're talking right now. And this is pretty comfortable for us in a way that it wasn't a couple of years ago. This idea of digital ownership, which like NFTs are, they can be complex and hard for people to understand, but it's really this idea of, you know, we own things in the real world. What if we could own a piece of the internet to some degree? And this idea of digital ownership is a pretty radical concept and it's really hard. And there's like going to be a barrier to entry. And if we're not careful, it's going to be the same dudes just, you know, coding the next iteration of technology. And so I was like, okay, let's launch, you know, a platform and network to really help onboard the mainstream into this new era of the web. And let's say this is the future. It's the wild west and men are building it. We talk about that all the time. And also at the same time, I can't wrap my head around it. I'm like, I don't want to be left behind, but I don't really understand how to get in. That's right. And I think that's why I wanted to build this because it's personal and I think I'm the one to do it. So we launched recently, just like a couple, like a week ago or a couple of weeks ago. So it's, you know, and we, we had a good launch. It was like a soft launch and it was chaotic behind the scenes. And, you know, I haven't slept in, in a week, but it feels like we're really finding our footing. And it feels like this is why I was meant to leave CNN and all these things. It's why I like, don't want to keep a, a day job. You know? <laughs> like I, <laughs> so I've got two quick questions as mm -hmm. we wrap up. The first is a listener question. Okay. Ashley wants to know, what has it meant to you to run your own company and call your own shots? What's been the biggest shift? You know, I think the biggest shift for me is having the ability to step into this role, step into this seat. It's not easy, but it is the most powerful thing in the world to realize that like your decisions are your own, that you can succeed or fail and it's on you. It is like the most freeing thing and the hardest thing, but it's the good kind of hard. It's your kind of hard because like you're not working night and day for something that you're frustrated by for someone else. It's like you control it. And there's something just extraordinary about that. Finally, who's someone else we should have on the show? I just interviewed her on, on camera and she's just like fascinating. There's this woman, Drew Dakota, I think is her last name. So she's an artist um, based in San Francisco who looks at that intersection of technology and, um, and art. She's also done NFT work and she has, you know, I, you hear me really passionately talking about how like women might be left behind and people of color and whatnot in this next era. She speaks so eloquently to it. And she also puts her money where her mouth is. She's created these big NFT projects and donated a lot of the, the proceeds to 
Stop Asian Hate to, you know, to the Martin Luther King Foundation. And she's just like kind of badass. Like, you know, when I went to go interview her, like she has a newborn and she just like commands a room. She needs to be known more. Can you introduce us? Yeah. That's a great, we haven't, we haven't gotten into that space. That's a good person yeah. to be on our radar. A hundred percent. Well, Lori, congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of nine to five ish with the skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, skim this every Thursday. We cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with the Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday. 